All right, folks, before we start this episode, we want you to know that we are very much concerned about the impact of the coronavirus, not just on our schools and our students and our teachers, but also our families and our listeners. And this episode that you're about to hear was recorded before the current situation developed. Um, Yeah, so what folks might not know about our full episodes is we actually record them usually about two weeks uh, before you see them, but sometimes even up to a month before the the episodes actually debut. So you might not have actually noticed, but we tend to cover, you know, recent stories that have happened, but we're not, you know, CNN with your nightly breaking news type of a situation. Fake news. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. So, um, so. It's not that we don't care about coronavirus. We care very much, but we also don't want to have a story, you know, or a perspective on a story that then becomes outdated, you know. Yeah, by given the time how, it gets out there. Exactly. Given yeah. how quickly everything's developing. So All um, right. we may bring you uh, additional thoughts on coronavirus as it pertains to schools and districts and school systems um, in our passing periods, because those are a little more timely for us right. to record and get out right away. All right, folks, so here we go with our episode about student engagement. Thank you for listening. And welcome, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, guys, gals, and non-binary pals to another episode of All the Above, the show that gives you an unstandardized take on education. I'm Jeffrey Garrett, one of your co-hosts, and I've been a middle and high school principal and a high school social studies teacher. And as always, I'm joined by Manuel Rustin, your favorite teacher's favorite teacher. I'm a high school history teacher in the Los Angeles area. And this, of course, is All of the Above, your place for news and analysis of all things related to education. Jeff, man, it's good to be back. It is. We got a, a, a episode chock full of greatness. I think you used the term juicy last episode. and that's a, good, um, that's a good word. Good technical. Plump. Yeah, plump. Full, full and ready to burst with knowledge full and, and ready discourse. to burst with, with all that. So <laughs> yes. if you are listening on the go, if you're listening to the podcast version of this episode, thank you for tuning in. Please, if you uh, like what you're hearing, uh, consider rating us and reviewing us because those make a, a big difference. And if you're watching on YouTube, if you enjoy what you see, go ahead and hit that subscribe button and a little thumbs up is always appreciated. Jeff, what's on the agenda for this episode? As usual, Manuel, we got a good one today, and uh, we are going to be joined by a a familiar face, our senior middle school correspondent, uh, the wonderful, the fantastic, the amazing Genevieve Dubose Akinagbe. Uh, is going to be back with us here in the studio, which is great. It's been a little while since we've since we've had yeah, her here, yeah. so we're excited to bring her back. And we're going to be getting into, I, I think, a really fascinating discussion. And it's about one of those terms in education that gets thrown around and used all the time. There's, more, a, there's a lot of there terms. There are a lot of those there's terms, but like it's in the same family of terms as like rigor. Mm. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah. one of those words like we all use and yet... Maybe we don't actually mean the same right, thing when right. we say it, right? Um, and that term is engagement. Mm. So we're going to be unpacking that a little bit today, talking about what does it mean to engage the students? What does it take uh, right. in this, you know, in this 21st century world in which we live, uh, in, you know, in today's context to really engage students and to use engagement as a lever for learning? So we're going to unpack that a little bit uh, with Genevieve today. Uh, it's going to be exciting. Definitely don't want to miss it. Dope. Sounds good. But at first, we have our Do Now, where we take a look at recent news in education. Stay tuned. 
Alright folks, it's time for the Do Now. Let's take a look at some headlines in education. Jeff, how are we doing the Do Now today? Well, Manuel, as all uh, good educators know, it's important mm -hmm. to give proper feedback to that your students. Got to let them know how True. they're doing, what's expected, what it's going to take to get to the next level yeah. of proficiency or performance. Cool, cool. And with that in mind, today we have a report card. Ah, report card. Time for some grades and feedback for a few folks out there, also yeah. known as maybe telling some people about themselves. <laughs> That's a good way to frame it. Good way to frame it. All right. So the first grade for today's report card, Jeff, we mm. have a um, an S. Do you know what S stands for? Satisfactory. I'm good. Nope. No. Not this time. No. S as in settlement. Ah. Yeah. Okay. Got you there, Jeff. Yes, I, I got know. you. You did. You did. <laughs> All right. This story um, was reported by a number of outlets, and we're leaning heavily on the Los, Los Angeles Times article by Sonali Coley. So shout out uh, to Sonali for this story about a massive settlement in California. Well, massive, I guess, um, kind of depends on how you look at it. This story relates to a $53 million settlement that comes after a group of students and teachers sued the state of California in 2018 for violating its state constitutional obligation to provide all children with equal access to an education. The group included students and teachers from three elementary schools in Los Angeles, Stockton, and Inglewood, and they sued after really low, really low ELA test scores, and they sued during a year when only 47% of third grade students across the state met state testing standards. Now, test scores have risen slightly since then, only slightly, and this settlement, this $53 million, is going to be spread out over three years to the 75 elementary schools with the poorest third grade reading scores. So this equals out to about $235,000 a year to boost reading scores, literacy scores in these 75 elementary schools. Jeff, um, that pretty much solves it, right? We're good to go as far as literacy and the the, the so-called achievement gap? Yep. Next, cool. next story. Fixed it. Yep. Fixed it. Done. Cool. <laughs> reading. Solved. Solved. Uh, <laughs> Uh, unfortunately, Manuel, no. Um, and I, you know, I will say I want to give props to, uh, to this courageous group of teachers, yeah. group of, uh, students and certainly families, right? It's not like third graders are filing lawsuits on their own. <laughs> um, and to, uh, I believe it was public counsel that was the yeah. lead, uh, counsel in this, in this case, I think ACLU was also involved. So I want to give like lots of props to these folks. Cause I think what they are doing is, uh, is is the best that they can, right? With right. hitting the state where it needs to be hit, right? Like yeah. California systematically underfunds schools, as do many other states in the union. And True. the result is horrible outcomes for young people, right? Now, of course, it's not only school-based, right? Like there's right. lots of other factors that inform this, but I really appreciate this effort to force change and to force it at it by addressing the constitutional obligation, which is really a moral obligation right. that we have to educate our young people. So I respect that. I appreciate that. And on the other hand, um, you know, I, I have to say, like, there's a part of me that just gets so frustrated with all of these settlements yeah. that keep coming out every time there's a lawsuit. And I get it. You don't want to be in court for a decade and then you right. might lose and, you know, you might sort of like never get anything right just yeah. as delayed is just as denied so to speak but 
at the same time, I'm like, what? So, so we're gonna, for three years, we're going to give a little over $200,000 right. to these 75 schools. Now, at an elementary school in California, $200,000 is not a small chunk of change, right. right? So they can get maybe, you know, a literacy coach, maybe some supplies and resources. Maybe they can get two positions yeah. uh, for three years out of this. And then what? And then what? Like stuff is just magically. Well, it'll be solved by then. <laughs> it'll be solved. All the kids will be yes. reading. Everything that was broken is now fixed, right? right? And I'm like, I, I, it frustrates me to no end that we keep getting these just frankly stupid three year settlements. Yeah. For there's probably been ten of these on major issues in my, right, in, right, the, right. in the six short years that I've lived in California. Yeah. And and I'm like, we're not addressing the structural challenges here these resources are important they're going to help they're probably going to make some difference but yeah. we also know that the schools that are struggling the most a three-year investment is not really enough time to see yeah. major change nor is it enough time to expect that any change that does happen is going to be sustained yeah so there's a part of me that loves this and there's a part of me that's like here yeah we go, here we go again yeah if we're talking about reading scores across the states then this 53 million is is likely a drop in the bucket really when you're looking at the challenges that we face regarding funding across uh, across the state across uh, communities especially communities with uh, the most challenged um, populations or marginalized populations in terms of um, all, all of the factors that go into something like a reading test score all the many many litany of things related to uh, various factors within the community, within the schools, and teacher turnover, and all those things. Um, one one thing I do like about the way this settlement is drawn up is that the schools. It's not just that the schools are just going to be given this chunk of change, and they could figure out what to do with it. Um, as um, the article quotes Pedro Nogueira, um, professor at UCLA. For those who don't know, UCLA number one public shout institution. Out. Shout out um, to Pedro. Yeah, shout out to Pedro. Um, but um, and he points out that you know it's important not to just throw money at schools that are um, so-called failing or underperforming um, because they may not have the capacity to know what to do with it to get the best bang for the buck, so to speak. That's not a direct quote. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here. Um, but the the settlement for for schools who are receiving this money, they have to do a, a community study. When I say community study, they have to invite members of the community, parents and, the, um, and others to look at what's causing the low test scores in the school in the first place and then design an approach and then have some kind of uh, progress check on that approach to see that uh, the needles being moved so sort of similar to like an action research style of like this this identify the problem this investigator this this come up with some possible solutions and the money could be used on as you said literacy coaches it could be used on a number of other things that they think might work but yeah three years is not enough to to really move anything especially if you're looking at test scores as like the indicator of whether or not something worked or not so it's definitely not enough and it is one of many many suits as you mentioned where the the effort to bring educational justice to our schools um is being fought in the courts versus trying to uh, make new policies because this is one place where i mean courts are one place where perhaps you could get more accomplished or more done than waiting for legislators but yeah it's uh it's one of those stories that's like it's good, I guess. It's good, but, I guess, and I want to give these folks yeah. props. But here, here's the thing, Manuel. Yeah. We already know. We already know why these schools have low reading scores. We do know I'm that. I'm going to tell you right now, and this is the same case for every school across the entire United States of America that's got single-digit levels of proficiency on the state right. ELA exam, right, and got almost no kids reading on grade level. Here we go. There is deep poverty in the community. 
True. There's deep instability in the community, whether True. that's immigration and migration, whether that's homelessness and you know displacement, that's, all and kinds economic of things, yeah. stress, right? But like families are hurting, right? True. There is toxic environmental stuff happening, whether that's pollution and recycling plants across the street from the school, like we yeah. see in Watts, or whether that's you know just like fumes from the farm that we yeah. see up in like Bakersfield or whatever, right? Right. Um, we have. Uh, ineffective teaching happening in the classroom, whether that's True. young teachers who are not very experienced, whether that's long-term subs and vacancies that can't yeah. be filled, or whether that's frankly folks that just don't have the skill set yet to do an effective job in the classroom. Those are the things that are happening. Those are the things that are happening everywhere. And next to that, you have systematic underfunding of these schools. So if we're not prepared to fix those things, as much as this is great, this $235,000 a year is like by itself not going to be enough, right? And then we're going to get the naysayers that are like, well, we threw some money at the problem and it didn't work. I'm like, the, the thing that does give me hope about this lawsuit mm -hmm. is I think one it's one step towards raising the costs of the separate and unequal school system that we have in this country. Mm -hmm. So in a certain sense, I think we got to go back to Plessy. Because mm -hmm. that's where we are. Yeah. Right. Separate, separate and equal is right, the right. law in this country now. So we need to actually make the cost of equal felt to those in power. Right. So, okay, we want separate segregated schools. Cool. We're going to need three times the resources for schools yeah. in the hood that are struggling with these issues, for rural schools that are struggling with these issues, three, four, five times the resources in order to compensate for the separate part of yeah. things. And if you want to pay that much, Okay, then I guess we'll have separate and equal schools, right? Um, you know, it's not mm -hmm. ideal, but it's where we are. So, you don't sound happy about this I'm at not all, man. I'm bitter. <laughs> I'm angry. <laughs> yeah, man. I mean, I wasn't happy at the number at all, yeah. but yeah, it's. Um, but I do want to say shout out to public council. Shout out to these children and teachers. After all that, I know it's it's a mixed emotional yeah. feeling. Like I respect what they're doing. Right, and right, I'm right. Pissed that we can't just fix this problem on a bigger level. True. All right, let's yeah. move on to the next grade. Um, so that was an F, uh, not an F, that was an S for <laughs> settlement. And uh, I think we have nice concluded Freudian slip that there. is a um, closer to an S for satisfactory, maybe an S minus, perhaps. All right, next grade, Jeff. All right, next up, here we go. Uh, Manuel, um, this one's a little bit complicated because right. it's either an A or an F. Hmm. I don't know how that really makes sense, but I mm. think when you hear it, it'll make sense. Depending on how you look at this situation, okay. uh, it could be an A, it could be an F. So here we go. Uh, this is uh, coming from some good reporting done out of the Texas Tribune uh, by Naomi Andu. And uh, it involves the story of Stacy Bailey. Stacy mm. is an art teacher who was placed on leave after revealing that she was engaged to a woman. Uh, and this is Stacy. Uh, Stacy herself is a woman mm -hmm. um, when sharing a photo of her family to her class. And she has now won a hundred thousand dollars settlement um, with her school district. Uh, Stacy, before this suspension, worked at Charlotte Anderson Elementary School uh, for over a decade. Charlotte is uh, Charlotte Anderson Elementary is part of the Mansfield uh, Independent School District, which is outside of the Dallas uh, Fort Worth area in Texas. Um, she was at that school for a decade, was named Teacher of the Year twice, and. Uh, when a parent complained uh, after she had shown pictures to her class that Stacy was, quote, promoting the homosexual agenda, 
close quote. Uh, by showing students a picture of her partly, partner, Bailey was then abruptly placed on leave. Um, now, as a part of the settlement, um, the school district has also agreed to provide mandatory training to human resources and counseling staff on LGBTQ issues um, and to require the Mansfield Independent School District Board of Trustees to vote on whether to add protections for sexual orientation into its policies. Those protections do not currently exist for Stacy and any uh, folks in her situation. So, Manuel. Uh, this is either an A or an F. Right. What say you? Well, first of all, Jeff, I want you to know that all, at all of the above, we like to bring teachers news um, headlines that they might have missed. Um, recent headlines, though. This has to be a story from like early 2000s, maybe late 90s. So I'm kind of, kind of ashamed that you pulled up a really old story because there's no way that teachers are being fired for simply showing a photo of their romantic partner. Um, to kids like that's i mean that's not happening if, in 2020 if by an older story you mean right. late february 2020 then yes it's an older story yeah so we're really out here doing this to teachers that's when i say we obviously not not you and i um, not our listeners and not jeff um these these really really um backwards bigoted uh school districts and school leaders across the country and in this case happens to be in texas but this is something that i'm sure uh happens in places outside of texas as well that's it's crazy because I'm thinking back to a few episodes ago when we had Aaron Whalen here and we were discussing support for our LGBTQ plus students. And he mentioned he, he mentioned something during that discussion about not um, coming out to his students in his first several years of teaching and kind of looking back at that and thinking about opportunities perhaps missed to show students that, um, you know, it's, it's not only OK to have a different different sexual orientation than what society wants to um, wants to deem appropriate, but it's also okay to be comfortable enough to express it to your own students and to your loved ones and everyone around. And he mentioned just real quickly and briefly something as simple as having a picture of his partner as his like um, wallpaper on his phone. And I had never thought about that. Like as a cisgendered straight teacher, I had never really thought about like the, the, danger in putting a picture of your partner in your classroom or even on your phone when that partner is uh when it's the same sex uh partner i never thought about that and when he mentioned that i was like damn that i really do have this tremendous privilege being cisgender straight male this tremendous privilege to talk about my wife all the time in class and have pictures of her everywhere and answer students questions about it and other teachers in this case uh stacy out in texas not being able to do that and when she did do that she got fired for it and this is a teacher who had been teacher of the year for her dis district more than once. So this is not like a teacher that was questionable and like reckless and this and that. And this was like the, the final, you know, whatever. No, this is like a great teacher that they had acknowledged was a great teacher. And yet they're going to get rid of her for simply showing a photo of her partner, not like, you know, leading a lesson on like this, showing a picture of her partner. Yeah, that's wild to me that yeah. that's still happening. But at the same time, it's not surprising at all. So it's both wild and not surprising at all somehow at yeah. the same time. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the same as what you said, Manuel, uh, Aaron's comments a few episodes ago, you know, really, really stood out to me for similar reasons, right? Because when right. I was a teacher, I had, you know, I brought, one day my mom was coming to visit the school and I put, mm. we, we stopped the lesson a few minutes before the end of class and I was like, hey, my mom's coming. I want to like show you guys some pictures of my family, um, that sort of thing. 
And, you know, and it's also, so in addition to just the freedom to do that, right, right to right, present right. yourself to your students and not have to hide things, it's also like a really good uh, moment of connection and relationship building with your class, yeah, right? Absolutely. Because they get, uh, oh, this, you know, like this is who you, you know, who you are as a full person, right? And like, oh, look how many, you have so many brothers and sisters. And, um, you yeah. know, in my family, like we're a diverse family, right? My mom is white, my dad is black, I have siblings of different skin colors. So, right, like, right. oh, your family's so diverse. It's interesting. Like, you're like a Dominican family, mister. And I'm like, <laughs> well, we're not Dominican, but I, yeah, like yeah. we kind of are, right? Um, and we could like find, points of connection right? right and you're like not only making her hide herself right yeah then also robbing her of the ability to have those kinds of connections yeah. with her students in general and for her students who are also um you know someday going to grow up and be uh, yeah. you know recognize their uh sexual identity as lgbtq also to have seen good positive models living a happy life right right um as someone who's like them right and so it's it's just tragic on on like so many levels so the district had a very interesting response manuel yeah uh, the district admits no wrongdoing in the settlement and their public comments on the matter make the claim that their concerns were about bailey's belief that it is her right and that it uh, is age appropriate for her to have for her to have ongoing discussions with elementary age students about her own sexual orientation the sexual orientation of artists and their relationship with other gay artists now if that doesn't sound like some mealy-mouthed like mealy -mouthed. Le legalese for bigotry nonsense right I don't know what is, dude. Like, yes. you're wrong, you're foul, you got caught, you got sued, you deserved it. $100,000 is probably not nearly enough right. uh, <laughs> to compensate this woman for the hardship and the yeah. hurt and pain that she's had to endure because of this nonsense. Uh, so I think you got off light from that yeah. standpoint. And I get in settlements, sides don't admit wrongdoing, but I'm also like, you know you're wrong, and your superintendent is even right. like going above and beyond the settlement because you know you're wrong. Yeah, that's nuts. And the whole age appropriate argument, like, you know, just these are elementary kids. Why, why are they? I mean, would you say that if it were if she were talking about her husband, you know, then it would be yeah. perfectly age appropriate. So why is it age appropriate for, you know, a heterosexual couple, but not age appropriate for a same sex couple like What's the difference? Yeah. I mean, you're not talking. Well, it's, I'll tell you the difference. The homosexual agenda. Yeah. That's, that's The homosexual agenda, trying yes. to brainwash these kids and uh -huh. all that. Um, yes. I do want to uh, just quickly correct something. I, said. I, I think, I believe I said she was fired. Uh, technically, she was placed on leave. And obviously, that has um, been reversed now. She's teaching at a high school. She loves teaching at the high school that she's at, but she does miss her former students. And mm -hmm. as part of the settlement, the district agreed to provide um, mandatory training to human resources and counseling staff on lgbtq issues in schools so sounds like some upcoming pd for folks and um we recently discussed pd and um yeah hopefully they do it right over there yeah. in mansfield independent school district so shout out to stacy bailey sorry you had to go through that obviously but um i think this is one of a string of cases that hopefully will help move us in the right direction when it comes to being supportive of not just our lgbtq students but also our staff members in schools across the country yeah i think we can leave you with stacy's words after the settlement which were uh if you're a school district who thinks you can bully and shame a gay teacher out of their job i hope you remember my name and mm. i hope you think twice 
I would mm. agree. Go yeah. ahead, Stacy. Get your money. And uh, yeah. you know, I hope your new students get the benefit of having you as their teacher. So Yeah, for sure. All right, Jeff. One last grade. What we got? What we got? What do we got? Ah. We have a C. C no. for uh all right, right. It's all right. Could be better. Good old college try, right? Good old college try. <laughs> yeah. Could be better. Could be worse. And this has to do with a story about a recent study, a working paper, about the likelihood of teachers to leave the profession based on standardized testing. All right. So this story comes out of Ed Week. Shout out to Madeline Will, who wrote about a working paper published by the Center for Analysis of Longitudinal Data in Educational Research. Um, and their study found that eliminating state testing did not have an effect on overall teacher turnover or attrition. However, it did find that early career teachers are less likely to leave the profession when there are fewer required tests. So the study examines the effects of changes in mandated, uh, mandated. I hate the mandated tests. Mandated <laughs> tests are like those are the crazy, worst man. ones. <laughs> so it's harder. Just yeah, those are. Yeah. But no, this study examines the effects of changes in mandated state testing in Georgia. So for eight years, all students in grades one through eight were tested in reading, English language arts, and math, and students in grades three through eight were also tested in science and social studies. But starting in 2011, the state began to scale back the number of required end of the year tests. So now students in grades three through eight are tested in English language arts and math, and only students in grades five and eight are tested in science and social studies. So Jeff, it looks like this change, well, using this change to uh, state testing in Georgia, these researchers were able to take a look at the likelihood of teachers to either leave the classroom or request different grade levels based on whether or not testing was happening there. They didn't really find that the testing had a big role to play in teachers leaving the classroom. So tell us, what are your thoughts about uh, the results of this? I, the, for a long time, there's been this, this discussion about teachers being burnt out and, and leaving the profession largely because of the, the high stakes nature of standardized tests. And this study shows that maybe that's not quite the case yeah so i have to be honest and say i was a little bit surprised that they found so you know such minimal correlation between teachers leaving and um right and serious reductions in standardized testing not not because those are factors that like have a one-to-one -one correlation but just mm -hmm. my assumption would have been that a reduction in state testing also comes with other sort of environmental factors in the job that maybe make it a little more sustainable. So that, that was a little bit surprising to me. But at the same time, this data point actually correlates with some other pretty striking data that we have. So um, the, the uh, Phi Delta Kappa does a, a national poll of teachers. And in their uh, 2019 poll, it showed that um, while more than half of teachers said they would vote to strike for more say in school standards, testing, and curriculum, only 1% of teachers pointed to testing requirements as a reason they have considered for leaving the profession. So I think that to me, that's actually interesting, right? Yeah. That, like people might have frustrations about uh, the sort of like regimes of testing that come and right. go, right? Um, but on a, on another level, like, that's not actually what's driving people's movement, you know, out of the profession. And so on a certain level that I'm, I'm pleased to hear that. Um, 
maybe a little bit surprised that those numbers are so stark yeah. that way, uh, but also feel like it, um, you know, testing exists in this kind of like milieu of, of stuff that makes the job tough, right? Yeah. And it's just kind of like one part of it. And I don't know that there's maybe any one part that like if you just remove it by itself is going to move the needle a whole lot in one direction or another. Right. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I was a bit surprised by this, but testing is but one piece of the overall puzzle of the various challenges that teachers face, um, particularly in the era of uh, high stakes accountability and all that. So the researchers specifically uh, looked at changes in mobility over time in grades and subjects that discontinued testing with grades and subjects that always tested. And they found that the removal of these tests really had no effect on the likelihood of teachers changing schools within a district or moving between districts or quitting altogether. Um, but there was the exception of teachers who were within their first five years of teaching. And this study found that those newer teachers were less likely to leave the profession when there were fewer testing requirements. Um, the gaps were small, but still relatively significant. My thing about the study is it looks like they looked at the time when there was a heavy testing through all these grades and all these subjects to now testing is still there in every grade for ELA and math. But as far as science and social studies, those are only during grade five and eight. Well, every so grade except, at, right? well, so that so Georgia doing some crazy stuff because this crazy I actually Georgia. wasn't that familiar with. Uh -huh. They were testing in ELA and math in first through eighth grades. In most, so that's in most yeah. states, they go three through eight right. um, every grade. And so, but if like, I'm a third, fourth, fifth, sixth grade, seventh grade, eighth grade teacher, I'm really looking at a slight reduction in testing with regards to science and social studies in certain years, but not like teachers who are working under this realm of high stakes testing versus teachers who have the freedom to not think about testing at all. You know what I'm saying? Like, right, right, right. Yeah. So it's different than the situation right. in high school where if you're like a, you know, Spanish teacher, I yeah. mean, maybe you have AP Spanish, but that's kind of a whole different ball game right. of testing. Right. Um, you have no state exam right. in most states that, uh, you know, that, that has that type of accountability structure attached, attached to it. Um, so yeah, but, but if you think about this from the elementary teacher's lens, right. right where you're teaching all of those subjects, that, yeah. if you go from having four tested subjects to having two tested subjects, right. that's a pretty significant. Yeah, decline, no, I definitely. Right? Yeah, definitely a decline, yeah. but I'm, I guess I'd be more curious to see how this plays out in schools or, or districts and states where there simply is a high stakes test of whatever kind that the teacher is expected to move numbers on versus a teacher teaching in a context where that just doesn't exist and, and comparing what the differences are with their overall experience because uh, less testing for sure, I would think would be better for these teachers. Um, however, they're still testing, they're still working within a school or within a district where the numbers are being reported and the numbers count for something. And to me, I mean, again, it's like, it's not super surprising, I guess, that um, lowering the amount of testing doesn't make a, a radical change in teacher turnover or teacher movement. But I don't, I don't know. I think it underplays the extent to which testing does weigh on teachers as part of the overall comprehensive conglomeration of things that like make teaching very, very, very difficult. Yeah, I, I mean, yes, and the data is what the data nope. is, right? Like it's it's interesting. I reject um, the data, Jeff. I reject it. Yes, fake news. Fake news. That? Okay. Alternative facts. Alternative facts, yes. Jeff. <laughs> okay. Oh man, we live in crazy times. We do. Well, we really I don't know do. What to say about it. <laughs> it's just uh, yeah, yeah. You gotta um, laugh, otherwise you'd cry. Indeed. You yeah. can do both, though. You can do you both. Can. We That's are true. complex individuals. That's true. It's, it's all right cry. to cry. 
it is. Yes. I don't know. Anything else that um, you want to say about this? No, I think, I think, you know, I think we hit it. Um, yeah. You know, if interesting case gives us a lot to think about, I think. As a history teacher, as the um, history teacher here, I know you're formerly a history teacher, um, but in terms of currently teaching history, I'm concerned about what history at all is being taught anymore in those grades where history is not being tested because like you said elementary teacher that's they're being tested in all these subjects that's a lot of things to cover if you say this year you don't have to worry about history or science i could only imagine many teachers are cutting back the amount of time they spend on history or science to make space for the subjects that do get tested that is 100 percent real yeah that also sounds like an, an argument for expanded state testing. Did I just hear that, that out of the mouth of Manuel That is Russell? not what you Because you're saying you want more testing so that people I'm saying have the incentive to teach? I'm saying if they didn't is have to worry about any testing, they could put together, with support, comprehensive curriculum that covers all of these areas ah. and builds students up for okay. a very strong background in all these subjects. So you're, so you're a radical leftist liberal communist. That's what you said. Is that what you meant? I guess so. Okay. All that. Why, why do you hate freedom, Manuel? Well, the thing about freedom, Jeff, is that um, <laughs> things are never quite free for those on the margins. They yeah. never have been. So. Uh -huh. All right. I think we're done here, Jeff. We're done. For this. For yes, this we are. <laughs> all right, folks. You're a communist. Alternative facts. It's all. All that. Whatever. All that. Yes. Uh, folks, let us know what you think about any of these stories. Uh, drop a comment below if you're watching this um, online. And if you're listening on the go, um, next time you have a moment, head over to AOTAshow.com to get links to all these stories and to the, the video versions of this episode. So you can drop your comments below and let us know what you think. All right. But up next, we have our seminar. We're going to bring in our senior middle school correspondent to discuss the umbrella term of student engagement. All right, stay tuned. All right, folks, welcome to today's seminar, and we thank you for joining us. It is our distinct pleasure to have back with us the one and only senior middle school correspondent <laughs> here on All the yeah. Above, the great Genevieve de Beauze Akinagbe. Welcome, Genevieve. Thank you. Thank Welcome you for back, yes. I should say. Happy to be here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're At some point, I want to ask her how her life has changed since, she, since she's been named senior middle school correspondent. Because oh I know that's big. big. Do tell. I don't know if you're on LinkedIn, but I know you definitely had yeah. something, that, you know, updated your profile. Yeah. Sending out the alert, like, please congratulate yeah. Genevieve for her new position. Hey, you worked hard for it. So many new Twitter followers. And people you it's, haven't yeah. talked to it's in huge. 22 years yeah. are like, hey, congrats. I know, I know. Life has changed. Thumbs up. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, okay. Well, Genevieve is here with us to have what I think is going to be a really fascinating conversation because there's, there's a lot of... Um, shall we say, jargon in the field of education. True. Terms that we use that are very commonly thrown around, but also for which there may or may not be any actual definition, or, or at least any shared definition. Mm -hmm. um, and we're going to talk about one of those today, that being the term engagement. So uh, what does it mean? What does it look like for students to be truly engaged in school? And how can we help create better and deeper engagement in a way that gives us leverage to support students learning all the wonderful things we hope they will learn um, while they're with us in school. So um, to set a little bit of context here, I'll say, you know, I think everyone can acknowledge that people are most likely to learn and retain knowledge when they're focused on something that they find really interesting or that speaks
speaks to their experience um, or that challenges them or maybe pushes them to grow or develop in some new and unique way. Um, yet for too many students in American schools, that's unfortunately uh, a pretty rare experience. So a recent study from uh, Yale University, uh, from their Center for Emotional Intelligence and the Center for Child Study um, that we actually talked about on a recent episode as well, showed that high school students have pretty overwhelmingly negative emotions associated with school. Um, and of course, this study just focused on high school, but one can only imagine it, if the high school students are feeling that way, what the middle school students might be feeling. Um, so whether we associate this kind of trend with perhaps a naturally challenging phase of life um, or an abysmal failure of our school system, the challenge in front of us as educators, I think, remains. How can schools ensure that every child is engaged and invested in their learning each and every day of school? Um, so to help us unpack that, Genevieve, Manuel are here. Uh, you know, engagement, one of those terms that we kind of, uh, you know, throw around. It sort of means whatever the speaker wants it to mean, right. I think, sometimes. Um, what does student engagement look, sound, and feel like in your view? Hmm. Well, to me, when I think of student engagement, um, I really think of how invested a kid is in their learning and also how inspired they are by mm. their, their schooling experiences. And so what you're saying about high school students not even wanting to be at school or feeling a really negative association, to me, is so sad because school is a place where there's such potential for um for investment and engagement. And so one thing that I think of in terms of what it looks like is I think of relationships and I think about if I am engaged and invested and inspired, like I have to be known well by the people around me. So that's like student to student relationships, but also um, I think about student to teacher relationships and even teacher to teacher relationships, because if I feel connected to my colleagues, I'm more likely to try new things out, like tap into, uh, you know, what my kids want and what they desire. Um, and I also really think about student voice, right? So to me, it looks like kids have a say in what their educational experience is looks like. And um, I mean, how often do we go into classes and see kids just sitting there, like really not doing anything? Mm. And so, um, I mean, I see that pretty regularly. And when I think about, hey, if this child is sitting in six periods a day, doing very little or nothing, there's clearly a problem. So how much of a say do they have in what they're doing, whether that's like the text that they're reading or the activities that they're engaged in or, you know, like what they're actually learning. Um, and so for me, those are two of the big things I think about relationships. Um, so to me, it looks like people really being known well. Um, and then I also think about how much as a, as a student do I have a say in what's happening, right? And one of like, I think I may have talked about this on a previous episode, but I used to give my students these anonymous um, Friday feedback forms right. where, you know, it was a great way for me to get a, like a pulse of what <laughs> I, they thought. <laughs> I'm remembering this is the one where you were like, what, what's working in class? Nothing. Nothing. Exactly. <laughs> what could be better? Everything. Everything. Exactly. <laughs> yes, it was horrible. But I mean, that's one way to tap into like hearing from students, right? And it could just be a space where kids get to share or they get to plan with you. Um, but how much do they have a say, right? And what's happening? So those are two of the things that I think about. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that um, big time. And when I think about myself as a classroom teacher, sometimes 
in class, I know when students are so-called engaged in the lesson, mm -hmm. when they're like, oh, wow, class is already almost over. Wow, that flew by. Mm -hmm. um, and that tends to happen when they feel seen, they see, feel acknowledged, and they feel that they had some sort of say or that whatever's happening in that class directly impacts them or connects with their interests or their background or their whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I know, so I teach on a 90 minute block. And when I transitioned from a school that taught on the traditional 53 minute periods mm -hmm. to 90 minute blocks, um, engagement became an even bigger, I guess, challenge for me. Cause yeah. it's like an hour and a half with, with teenagers is, <laughs> well, hour and a half with anybody really, but teenagers <laughs> specifically. And love is, um, yeah. I like that, that yeah. little asterisk there. Cause let's be real, an yeah. hour and a half with yeah. anybody can be a struggle. For sure, yeah. for sure. <laughs> and I really had to double down on my um, focus on keeping students engaged and delivering content or delivering experiences in class that mm -hmm. they felt were worth their time and that they felt had um, importance to them in one way or another. And going into any person's classroom, you know, I think some people, they'll walk into a class and, and think the students are engaged if they see like every student or most students like doing whatever work, whatever assignment is being um, being delivered. But I think that's one of the areas where we kind of have a disagreement about what engagement means mm -hmm. uh, across our, our system, because mm -hmm. to me, that's like mindless. It could be mindless, busy work. And you walk in, and it looks like everybody's quiet. Everyone's at their desk doing something. And wow, these students are all engaged. No one's like taking a nap in the back. Um, but they might not be intellectually engaged. They might not be mm -hmm. engaged in any kind of sense of like actually caring about what's happening. So yeah. Uh, so yeah, engagement for me, like you said, it's students feeling that they are seen, that they're part of it that they have been heard. And um, a, a quick way for me to know that that's happening is when students are enjoying themselves and just like shocked that class is already over and yeah. asking about when yeah. we'll do this again or, or what are we doing tomorrow or, or what have you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, I think the, the ideas that you both shared, of course, really, really resonate. I also think about like, you know, and this is kind of a bigger conversation. Maybe we'll have to have you back to NVF to <laughs> talk two, about as well, two. right? But like what has happened to what school is over the last, say, 20 years, right? Um, it's sort of the post-No Child Left Behind era, the narrowing of the curriculum, um, you know, and a lot of people sort of blame that on testing or standards. Right. And there's some truth to that, but also, you know, there's another story too. Um, but I think about, like, what do I really remember from school in my, you know, in my upbringing, right? And it's not the standards that I was taught, Right. It's not the, you know, the times I was successful on the test. I could I could not tell you. I mean, maybe a couple of <laughs> AP exams or whatever. I like mm -hmm. kind of remember because it was such an intense experience. Mm -hmm. But I don't remember what any of the chapter tests in any class I ever took I had to say, really. Yeah. I remember the connection I had with teachers. I remember the cool stuff we did in class. I remember, you know, the field trips we went on to certain yes. places, the times where I got to be actively involved, right? right? The times when I got to like combine the little piece of sodium with the water and watch it kind of bubble and spark <laughs> or whatever in chemistry class. And, you know, the times where we got to like um, grow plants in fourth grade, you know, and those, those sorts of things, the times where we got to, um, create a little environment in the aquarium for the for the anoles to live in like <laughs> and i i also remember some of the content that came with that but like it was exciting interesting hands-on stuff yeah. right it was not the great lecture that my teacher delivered one day <laughs> that, that was very inspired yes. right it was it's the relationships the connection and the hands-on 
cool experiences that then bring you into the content, yeah. right? Um, yeah. And I, I, you know, I worry that like we maybe have lost sight of the importance of that. Uh, today, or at least to some extent, the like yeah. incentive structures we put in place push us away from thinking about how do we create those experiences to thinking about like well, what's the objective, what's the standard, what's the yeah. you know what's the skill, and I don't I'm you know I'm not anti those things, but we are going to be more effective I think at getting to those things if we're thinking about like what's the rich experience kids yeah. are going to have as well. Yeah, it's. Can I add a little something of to course. that? Which just, you make me think about like the why, like the purpose, right? I feel like that's a key part to engagement as well. Like, is a teacher saying like why we're doing this or does a kid know why, right? Mm -hmm. Do they determine for themselves? And it's like, I think about some of my sixth graders when I was teaching in Oakland, um, you know, and like, you know, they had to write an argumentative essay, like, okay, great. Like, but why do you need to learn to write an argumentative essay for what purpose? And we had a lot of students um, in that, group of kids that year that were really impacted by incarceration and whether they had, you know, parents who were incarcerated or community or family members. And so we did a lot of work and awesome organizing with like people from outside from the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights. Um, two lawyers would come in and talk with our students. And then, you know, they had the opportunity to write these argumentative letters to their respective representatives and we went to sacramento to deliver them and so there was like a real purpose in doing it and for me that's a big part of engagement as well is what's the why right like does a kid know why they're doing something and if they don't they're far more likely to be disengaged mm -hmm. you know yeah so to that uh to that point right mm -hmm. where do you think that we're getting it right around engagement like you know where are we really hitting it out of the park and, and making sure the kids are, you know, are having these kinds of engaging experiences to use, to use a term as we define a term, uh, <laughs> <laughs> that makes all our English teacher fans happy, I'm sure. Uh, but where are we getting it right? That's a good question. I had a hard time with this question as yeah. I'm thinking about it. And because I feel like I can t think about individual teachers, right. um, or, or some schools, um, you know, I, I had the honor of working at a school in Oakland that was an expeditionary learning school. And so kids were doing all of these and not expeditionary learning as it is in the new kind of common core way, like with Engage NY resources, but really kids actually going out in, to do work in the field. And so we had, you know, a group of sixth graders that were um, collecting water samples from Lake Merritt and testing the water quality and doing this whole like, you know, they're like this whole um, science um, unit around the water quality in this lake right next to like in our city, you know, and, right. and for and then they made these like door hangers that they went and put around people's community, uh, people's homes just to, you know, share the information that they were learning. So they had like this authentic purpose. Um, and for me, that's like that real world, real life experience helps make it more um you know engaging and relevant for kids but i honestly had a hard time thinking about a lot of examples of where this is happening beyond individual teachers um that i know or have seen mm -hmm. yeah. yeah yeah i think by and large it, it's definitely hit and miss it's hit and miss in my classroom in mm -hmm. a particular period it could be hit or miss um and when i think back to the study that you referenced in the beginning that yale study that showed 75 percent of of high schoolers have negative feelings around high school. I think that's indicative of the fact that system-wide, just generally any school you drop into across the nation, um, 
overall engagement simply isn't being done right. And it's not being done in a way that that appeals to the students that we have today. And in some areas, it's working great. So for example, I can think of uh, the elected teachers out there, CTE teachers. Uh, mm. When we first launched the show, we had student helpers really helping us with the tech aspect. And we're filming in a studio mm -hmm. that is located at high school. And, and those students were, are really into audio video production. And for them, that particular content area, that particular course or set of courses that they've um, been in, super, super engaged in those courses. But they are a handful of students out of a class of whatever, 30, 35, and not every student is into that sort of stuff. So having all be engaged in something like that, it's like that's that was that continues to be a challenge. I know for a lot of elective teachers out there trying to um, engage students who might not be particularly interested in that. What, whatever that uh, actual uh, content area might be. I think overall, we really are struggling as a profession with student engagement in the sense of having something that students enjoy doing, that they continue to enjoy doing. So I've had uh, assignments or activities where they were super engaged for the first day, <laughs> semi-engaged the second day, and by the third day, they were over it. And this is like a two-week project that we're, you know, but, you know, it's, it's so me. maintaining uh, that. Yeah. So is, boring, mister. Exactly. boring. And then you have the, the, the basic things that, that you, you have to teach, basic skills that, I don't mean basic in a, um, you know, ranking sense, but essential skills that, that they need for success in college and beyond that are, you know, you might have a super great engaging lesson for this particular day, but then it's followed up by, we got to get, like, to some basics here so yeah. for example in teaching economics and teaching about supply and demand there's all sort of re there's all sorts of real world applications that i'm able to use to help engage them but at the end of the day i still need them to look at the supply and demand curves mm -hmm. and identify the equilibrium price and do some basic stuff that some of them just aren't interested in yeah 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 yeah, and you know it's funny you say that because I think there's I, I think that's actually like sort of a maybe a classic point of differentiation in some ways between interest and engagement, right? Yeah. And you know there are there are times in any course where you know the ebb and flow. You put thirty people in a room and ask yeah. them like, "Is the sky blue?" And, and you're not going to get consensus, this day and age. right? Yeah. I saw something on YouTube. Yeah, actually, exactly. Did you know that yeah. Kyrie Irving told me the Earth is flat and the sky is green, or whatever, right? And like, so that there's just a human reality to that, right? Um, but I think like as as we look at the overall, like the big picture, the trends. Right. Um, you know, engagement, what counts as engaging really is going to vary from person to person right. and is also something that's going to like ebb and flow over time. I even on like things that I really love, yeah. you know, like football or whatever, like my my yeah. engagement ebbs and flows over time. And I think that's OK. Um, but I, I really want to come back something uh, to something you said, Manuel, that I think to me is a place where I tend to see that we're getting it more right, more of the time than we are. Uh, in, in a lot of the more traditional academic disciplines. And I think that's in the arts. Mm -hmm. I think that's in, you know, for lack of a better term, your sort of CTE, your like technical right. uh, and career oriented subjects. Um, and I think what tends to distinguish those classes, like if you go to a good dance class, if you go to a good um, ceramics class, right? If you go to a, uh, a band, right? Um, what distinguishes those experiences from traditional class is it's almost entirely students trying stuff, getting some feedback, trying Try it again. again. Yeah. And they just do that over and over and over again. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, you know, the, the way that teachers teach almost by necessity is like, 
all right, take out your charcoal and like scribble some stuff on paper, like see if you can do what this person on right. <laughs> on the screen here is doing, right? Um, and and it is the act of the doing, right? That's such a uh, if we graphed like the percentage of the time the kids are doing versus the percentage of the time they're being told about mm -hmm. the doing, yeah. it's like the inverse of what we see in a lot of right. more traditional classes, right? Yeah. Which is like, let me give you all this information so that someday you can do college, right? right. Or right. Someday you can do high school or someday you can do middle school. Um, and in those classes, they're like, our job is to draw a picture of somebody's face start drawing a, a picture of somebody's yeah. face, right? Or we're going to start with lines, draw some lines, right? right. We're going to start with shading, try to shade this object, right? Yeah. Um, and it's just such a, um, I think there's actually a lot for us to learn in the more traditional core subjects from that mode of instruction, mm -hmm. right? And of course it's different, you know, like in a, a lot of the doing we want kids to do in history and English requires enough knowledge to be able to do something yeah. interesting, right? But um, but I think there's a lesson there for yeah. us about like what it means to get kids engaged. Like we got to do more. Yeah. And I mean, you're making me think, too, about um, I keep thinking about Zaretta Hammond's work in culturally responsive teaching in the brain and how it's really about like essentially kids getting smarter. Right. And us knowing um, that for kids, when you feel like you've learned something like you feel a sense of pride and excitement about that. And, and, you know, she, she frames it in this way around like with looking at like brain science and thinking about, you know, you can, you got to ignite the brain, like, and that's like through some kind of music or any type, any way to like, just get you with me. Um, and then you also then have to like, you're, you have like a chunk of something. You're not like, you know, doing something for more than 10 to 12 minutes. You get some time to chew it, like to really think about it. Um, and talk with other people about it, process it, and then you have time to review it and think about how does it actually apply to, you know, you get to try it out with something. And then you kind of repeat that. And I find that, especially like in English classes, like when kids are learning something, and I think about certain ELA teachers um, where their students are more engaged, they feel, I can see kids doing things for themselves. Like they've learned a set of like, strategies to access something that's hard for them mm. and that they're then helping each other. And, and when a kid is actually teaching another kid, like that's a form of engagement um, and actually deepening their knowledge that, you know, we don't give kids the opportunity to do a lot. And so I think of her work and what you're referencing in terms of like the arts and some of the CTE um, classes around in um, like an ELA class or maybe like a math class, like, allowing students to have that time to go through that process of igniting, chunking, chewing, and then reviewing and applying and then repeating that, you know, as a way to kind of grow their, their skill set, And then which people feel like we feel happier when we feel accomplished and actually, you know, right. like we, we just learned something, we did it. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Genevieve, I, you know, I think that uh, the points you're making and drawing on Zaretta Hammond's work, I think are really, really profound. And for folks out there, if you haven't taken a look at Zaretta Hammond's work, you know, it comes highly recommended culturally, culturally responsive teaching and the brain. Uh, great book. And I think one that educators all over the country, regardless of the context you teach in could really, uh, really benefit from. Um, man, well, maybe we'll, we'll pivot to you for our, for our final question of the, of today's seminar, which is, you know, what do you think the general public perhaps misunderstands most about engagement and its role in school and in student performance? 
Yeah, I think that's a great question. And I think the one of the greatest misperceptions out there is that engagement equals learning. Yeah. I've seen so many viral videos of, <laughs> I guess, cool things happening in the classroom that people who aren't in education and some who are um, just love and spread. And, and for example, like, you know, having students rap some recited thing about like some kind of you know whatever um chemical process it looks super engaging and the kids are rapping it and everyone's doing it and wow this is great look at this great teacher um but if students are just memorizing the words to rap it it's still down to rote memorization that if they don't understand the actual process or whatever they're rapping about for example um you know they're not necessarily learning anything it looks really cool on video um usually those teachers get celebrated big time and some of them some who you know have gone viral for something similar to that um, are phenomenal educators but a lot of times like kids having fun doing something or something seeming creative doesn't automatically mean anything of any value is being learned mm -hmm. and i know as a teacher i've been tagged in all kinds of videos on Facebook of like cool things happening in the classroom and like, oh, let me let me tag so-and-so. Uh, He's a teacher. He'll love this. And I look and I just like <laughs> kind of like just choose not to comment because I don't want to come off as a hater. But a lot of times it's like, <laughs> tell man, him why you're like, mad, just, man. Well, tell just, them why you're mad, son. Making them rap like something, you know, just that's not automatically learning. And that's not hip hop. Ed. That's not like that's just what I like. It's just a little gimmick or a trick. And that's mm. not necessarily learning. So I think that's one of the biggest misconceptions about student engagement, just because they're having fun or it looks cool doesn't mean any learning's going on mm -hmm. and um yeah i'm i'm just a hater in that regard i guess but uh, whatever the mad the <laughs> mad teacher uh, right here <laughs> <laughs> i you made me think too manuel i mean i think i'd also say that one of the biggest um misconceptions is that engagement equals like performance on state tests and I think mm. like, you know, people think, oh, if, if the school's performing well, that must be a great school. Kids must be engaged. They must be learning. Um, and we know there's a number of factors that go into how a student performs on a standardized assessment. So I think that the public generally, it's like we think about, oh, how are we scoring schools and grading schools? Or let's look at this website and see what percentage of their students were proficient last year. Um, oh, that must tell us X about a school. And right. that's not necessarily true, right? Like kids may not be engaged in their learning process. They may not have a voice. They may not be invested. They may not be known well, but they may just come from a community where they are reading and writing at or above grade level and that's just who they are or what they've been exposed to. So um, so I think that that's another thing to be wary of. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of wisdom that has been shared on on this conversation here that certainly resonates on both fronts, right? The sort of like um, hokey version of engagement that is, uh, you know, that's cool, that's fun, yeah. right? But really isn't bringing along with it the deeper learning right. that uh, that I think we as educators are aspiring to. Um, and then the, the sort of like assumption of engagement that may, that may or may not mm -hmm. actually be present just because the results on certain measures that we value uh, may be there, right? Um, and then maybe the assumption that engagement is not there mm -hmm. because the, the performance on those measures is not yet mm -hmm. what we want it to be, right? Um, and, and I think in some ways, both of what you're saying speaks to where we started, right? Which is like this term engagement 
there isn't necessarily a clean definition of right um but yet maybe there's an acknowledgement that we have that that whatever it means it's useful yeah <laughs> to yeah. to to you know kids learning in school right absolutely um, so, yeah, so, you know, I want to thank Genevieve, senior middle school correspondent, for being yeah. back with us today. Uh, it's a pleasure, as always, drawing upon your wisdom and experience. Um, and, folks, if you enjoyed today's conversation, I want to just encourage you to, to like what you're listening to, what you are watching, share it with others in your network. All of the likes, the five-star ratings, the thumbs-ups, the various ways in which the social media universe uh, All that you know shows love. Uh, <laughs> we could use a little more of that love, and we appreciate you for doing so. Um, yeah. And as always, you can find all of our content at aotashow.com. That's a website. Everything's there. It's the home of it all. So come check it out. And uh, thanks for joining us today. And uh, next up is today's class dismissed. Yep. All right, folks, now it's time for Class Dismissed, where we like to give shout outs to folks doing great things in education. And although Black History Month has officially ended, we know, like you know, that Black History Month really exists 365 days a year or 366 this year. That's Jeff, right. 29 days. Black history <laughs> is um, American history and worldwide history. And Jeff, we have another shout out to give related to Black History Month. What we got? Yeah, man. Well, I think, you know, an honor of February 29th and our little bit of uh, temporal reparations. Uh, <laughs> we're going to give a shout out to just a, a wonderful teacher out there who uh, made some some waves online and social media with uh, just a cool classroom effort she undertook to help celebrate Black History Month with yep. her uh, with her students who are also overwhelmingly black. So this shout out is to uh, Latoya McGriff. Um, who is a first grade teacher in Suffolk, Virginia. And she took it upon herself to dress up each day of the month as a different notable figure from black history. Mm. And what I really appreciated actually about what she did is part of it was some of the like, you know, a little more famous or big name right. folks or people who represented certain big name groups that you might've heard of. So um, she dressed up as um, like one of the Tuskegee Airmen, for example, and, okay. and Arthur Ashe, you know, with her like cool right. tennis outfit um, and Ella Fitzgerald. But she also dressed up as some like local Virginia folks who most people nationally probably haven't heard of, but are important black people in, in their local context, right? Um, she also dressed up one day as Henrietta Lacks, who, um, you know, has has become a little more, more well-known lately because she was a person whose cells were taken and are you yeah. know, still being used in, in medical uh, research because of a unique property of, of reproduction that they had. So um, I think just a, a cool way to look yeah, at all dope. the different ways that black folks have helped contribute to Virginia and to America right. um, and helped enrich our society and our world. So shout out to Miss McGriff. Yeah, that's uh, super in, dope. Yeah, in Suffolk, Virginia. Keep doing your thing and, and we yeah. see you. We appreciate you. I actually have three things about that, Jeff. I know we're closing out this episode, but um, number one, that's a lot of different outfits. Yeah, like, it was a, a lot. There's a lot going She's on. She's been planning that for a while. Many wardrobe dope. changes. Yes. Many, many. <laughs> Um, number two, you mentioned Arthur Ashe as one of the folks that she dressed up as. Um, do you know what university Arthur Ashe went to? 
I, I couldn't tell you, man. Well, why don't you mm. tell us? Well, he actually went to the number one public university in the world, uh, <laughs> UCLA. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, I was just wanted to put that out there. I was going to say something else. Nah. Okay. Uh, but he's from Richmond, Virginia. Shout out to my Richmond folks. And um, number three, I have a colleague here who dressed up as Jimi Hendrix as one of our, um, we had a Spirit Week thing going on. And that colleague happens to be white and happens to be a woman and Jimi hendrix is is black and uh Jimi hendrix is is male and um she pulled it off and you know what she didn't have to reach for the, didn't the makeup didn't or, have to get or the, any of that the burnt cork going she did not so it turns <laughs> yeah. out for okay. any of our listeners who are concerned about ever dressing up as somebody um who isn't white um you could totally do that with the clothing, with the arrangements, wow. without having to reach for... You mean you don't need blackface? You actually don't. Wow. Can you... Okay. Yeah. Yes. Wild. Well, Black History Month is also a good time to learn that, folks. Indeed. So. <laughs> Indeed. Yes. All right, folks. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. We've had a blast, and we hope to have you join us again next time. If you haven't already, please hit that subscribe button, rate us, review us, all that good stuff, because that makes a big difference for us and we truly appreciate it. All right. So we'll catch you next time.